Well, good morning, Grace. Good to see everyone here today. The summer is here. The heat is on. But we've all gathered in a cool place to worship together. We're just glad to have you here with us this morning. And we are wrapping up our series called Eight, which is about one of the most famous and cherished passages of Scripture, Romans chapter 8. I would like to start this morning with something very, very basic. And I think the Bible is clear that God loves everyone. And we see that in his nature, in his character, and by his action. And when a person comes into a relationship with God by faith, by trusting what he's done, there is some special information for him. And it's more than instructions, but it's needed information about this new relationship. And that's what's so special about Romans chapter 8, is it gives us this special information about God's love for us, shown by the foundation that we have in grace and also in the awesome promise of a future without end. And that's why we love the passage so much. Now, this last section that we're going to talk about today could be summarized by a question. What can separate us from the love of Christ? And when you think about that, can anyone or anything separate me from God's love? And when I say separate, I mean, can it disconnect me, sever, or end my relationship? Is there anything I can do to botch up that relationship? Because I know that I would want to know that. Can we know that? I would like to feel secure about that. And I know I would want to know that before death. Now, new Christians, when they come to faith, they're excited about beginning this walk. They're not thinking about an end. But if you've been a Christian for very long, I'm sure that that has entered into your mind where you have doubted whether that relationship can continue. I know I have. I also know that we have debated. We debate this issue, once saved, always saved. And that's in the history of the church, debating those things. And then there's always the critics who would say about that teaching that that will just lead to misbehavior and a license to sin. What Romans 8 does, it tells us about this kind of love from God's point of view. And I wonder sometimes if we think that God loves us because of the way that we love each other. Now, humans are really good about sharing love in song. And uh, they've written some wonderful, beautiful love songs. And sometimes maybe just some warm and fuzzies, and sometimes maybe just a little bit cheesy, and sometimes quite odd. So would you like to hear some love songs this morning? Yeah. All right, so we're going to play a few love songs for you. Let's go ahead and get that started. You can sing along. I just call to say I love you. I just call to say. Now, for the 
young people that what he's holding there is a phone, okay? And that little line coming out there, that's like when you were a teenager and you wanted to talk to your girlfriend, you couldn't get very far away from everybody. And you remember, everybody else seemed to want to be on the phone at the same time. Does anybody remember this at all? All right, yeah, and the busy signals, okay? Well, some people also have decided to write love songs by bringing God into the picture. See if you remember this one. Now, I'm not sure why I'm showing that in church. I probably didn't let my kids watch that back in the day. But, you know, I always feel bad when I, that song kind of creeps me out. I feel bad for the people that God didn't spend much time on, you know. It just doesn't make sense, you know. But how about this one? I think everyone will know this one. You know what I learned about that? That that made number one on the most cheesy love songs ever. I also learned in an interview that, that Celine did not want to sing it. That she thought it was too corny. But I just thought I'd throw it in for an icebreaker for you this morning, okay? Yeah. Well, I don't know anyone who writes love songs better than country, country music. So, how about this one? You're the reason I'm riding around on recap tires. And you're the reason I'm hanging our clothes outside on wars. And you're the reason our kids are ugly, little darling. Oh, but looks ain't everything. And money ain't everything. But I love you just the same. Some people respond, how many of you know that song? You do, you do. Some of you look at you. You really want to raise your hand? You know that song. Good night. How many of you have said that to your spouse ever? Don't raise your hand. Okay. I think this last one's my favorite. And you'll probably know it. It's Johnny Cash. And now you say you've got me out of your conscience. I've been flushed from the bathroom of your heart. Aren't you glad you came to church today? <clears throat> you talk about separation, like, wow. But anyways, I'm grateful for Scripture because I think Scripture gives us a love story. And with all the different things, I don't look at Paul as a romantic but I think his version and description of love is just one of the best in 1 Corinthians 13. And he goes on and gives several things that really spell out how love acts and how it behaves. But it wouldn't be anything if it didn't end in such a powerful way where he uses these, these big sweeping type of terms. It's like straps or arms around where he says that love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, love never fails. What would love be if it had 
an end to it. So God wants us to know love from his point of view. But I think that believers, I think we just doubt God's love. And I want to give a few reasons of what I've experienced and what I hear others on why we doubt God's love. I think, first of all, it's because we sin. We sin in small ways, in big ways, addictive ways, where we come to the conclusion that God can't love me for this. And maybe others are condemning us. You, you can't be a Christian and struggle with that. I meet with a lot of people, and most of the people I meet with are people from our congregation. Not like people on the outside are coming in to talk. To, but those within that come in and share about their failures and their struggle. And sometimes I have wondered if everyone in the church knew how people struggle and fail, would they love them? Would they think they're a Christian? And most of the reason that they're coming in is because they want help. But many of them have felt it's like useless because I just don't think God could love me because of the things that I struggle with. And then I think another reason is because of life's experiences with love. And this has to do with upbringing. I think a lot of people have gone through a distorted view of love where love in their home was, was very conditional, where they never got the approval. There's a lot of strictness in their homes. And then some, maybe because it was dysfunctional, where they faced abandonment and abuse. And then when you say God loves you, that just, you know, he loves you like a father. That just doesn't connect with them. Another reason is because of bad teaching. There's a lot of churches that are teaching that you, yes, have Jesus, but you have to add something to that. Probably many of you went through a ritualistic system as a kid that taught you you had to do all these things to be kept and to be safe with God. You know, I want to just share a story with you. When I was uh, back in Bible college, I worked in a factory, and the factory had hired people from our, our college, and our college was a Baptist college, and it taught about eternal security, once saved, always saved. But they also hired students from another school called the, Holy, the, the Holiness Covenant School. And then these, these students were, they didn't believe in eternal security. They believed you could lose your salvation. And what I learned was they, de they didn't believe just that you could lose it if you went out and did something bad or if you left God. But you could lose it on some very extreme, minor types of things. The girls, they, they couldn't cut their hair. They weren't allowed to wear makeup. You know, they couldn't wear jewelry. Even the guys had to wear their shirts, the long sleeves. They couldn't show this part of their arm. And what I noticed is that some of them had mastered that external thing, that compliance. But I also noticed that some of them were the best gossipers I've ever seen and could, you know, not forgive one another and not be so helpful. I remember one time there was a guy who worked in our department. His name was Charlie. And uh, we were, it was a hot summer day, over 100 degrees in the factory. And Charlie was just looking forward to the break. The break comes and he starts to unbutton his shirt and take his shirt off. And he's got one of those little skippy 
uh, white t-shirts. I think they call them wife beaters, which I don't think is all that good anymore to, to use. I'm not sure why he had one or why, why that was allowed in their school, but he takes off running outside. We all go outside just to try to get some relief and throw water on each other. And we're all really, really happy for Charlie because he's getting some relief. But at the same time, I'm like, oh no, has he lost his salvation? Or does he even think that he has? And so sometimes that, those extremes are just really hard to process. But then also, I think it's because of hardship and injustice. That some people go through such difficult and hard experiences, they think, how in the world can God love me? Or why is he allowing this to happen? And they struggle in that area. And what Paul concludes for the believer is with a lot of substance in this chapter, but also with great emotion. And I've outlined this according to the natural outline of the, of the passage with three questions. What has God already promised me as a believer? Can anyone or anything take those things away? And will God ever let me go? We start in verse 31, and this is the review here where it says, What shall we say to these things? And that's connecting verse 31 to 39 to verses 1 through 30. So we're going back, and the first thing that we, we learn in this passage is about that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And what I get from that, not being condemned when I stand before truth, is that I'm receiving some legal help, but not to prove my innocence but to clear my guilt. My eternal connection to God comes because my penalty has been paid for by His Son. And that's a great act of love that's not based upon my performance. It's a gift. And then we learned in the second week about, from Pastor Luke that we're adopted, that we are made children of God, and that there is an identity and an inheritance for us. We are connected to him. That's his plan to connect us in that way. And that's not fully realized yet. And that's why we groan and long because it's not fully here yet. And then last week, Pastor Kevin talked about that all things work together for good to those who love God. And as he shared, it's not a sentimental type of love. I think that's the hard love. That means he's using everything I go through to take me from the worst version of myself to the best version of myself to the glory of God. And so when he says, what shall we say to these things? These are the things that are for us as believers. And Paul is reviewing that for us. So what should we say? I think that gives us permission to think that I am fully known and loved by God. I think it allows us to enjoy this connection because it comes from God's heart at his own expense. Paul has built a great case of security, but he's not done yet. As we go into the rest of the passage, he brings up more questions to help us process this. Can anyone take these things away from us? So look at verse 31. He says, if God be for us, who can be against us? And the obvious answer for that is no. And this is, he's bringing us to a perspective of God's power. Who can be above God? If he is for us, who can be against us? Back uh, years ago, when we first started teaching, we were involved in a church where, you know, a lot of the young people knew 
us by our first names, you know, Forrest and Vicky. And um, then I became a teacher. And one night, this, uh, this lady comes up to me, whose daughter was in the kindergarten, and she says to me, I got to tell you something that happened to me while I was uh, reading scripture and praying with my daughter. So this is like a five-year-old. So I read this verse, if God be for us, who can be against us? And her eyes got really big. And she said, Mom, is God Forrest? <laughs> I must have had a great impression on that little girl, huh? <laughs> That's over with, yeah. But Paul isn't saying that there's no one against us. But who? And how do we know that he's for us? His character is all over his salvation. Look at verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. There is nothing greater God could have done to prove to us that he loves us. And to keep salvation, if it's based upon my performance and my perfection, why would he sacrifice his son? What God has done for us is the hard part in giving his son for all of us. He didn't hold back anything if he didn't hold back his son. Look at verse 32. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? So what are all things, we might ask? What did giving his son provide for us? And I think that's answered in one of the most popular passages in in the Bible, and that is John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. He connects what he has given to something that we are provided for if we believe. So that costly act gives me eternal life. I Learn that I will live again in a place where there's no curse, where there's no harm to come to me and no harm that I will do. That I'm not just spared, but I actually will be glorified like his son. And this is what he wants us to know for now, for us to live in that kind of security with him now and to have that hope. That is how God is for us in our salvation and in our security. Look at verse 33. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? That word elect means those who've been called and those who have responded to his call. And he's saying here, not that Paul, Paul is saying that not that there is no charges because we're sinners. There's lots of charges against us. But he's brought him into this position of judge here for us. And not that there's no accusers because we have Satan, we have others, we even have ourselves, But nothing sticks. The worthiness of the price that he paid is more than settled our score. His grace is greater than our sin. He goes on to say, it is God who justifies. Who better? He's the supreme court for us. If he gave it to us on his merit, so he did so while we were, while we were wretched. We never were qualified to receive what he's given us. And if we didn't forgive ourselves or bring ourselves to God or make ourselves his children, how can we nullify the grace and the work of grace that he's done for us? He goes on, who is the one who condemns? 
Again, the highest position. And he answers that in verse 34. Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. All those things are true. All those things are working for us. He's saying that Jesus' death is, was the condemnation of sin and his resurrection is the proof that his sacrifice was enough. And now he has moved to the right hand of God not to condemn us, but to actually intercede for us because we're still down here struggling. So if he's for us, if he won't condemn us, who can? So can anyone or anything take that away or argue that we should not have that, count on that? No, not even ourselves. And that should be producing in us humility and gratefulness. So Paul here is explaining the reasoning for us to be able to know that our love, his love is secure with us. So lastly, will God ever let me go? Will his love ever fail as we just sang about? Verse 35, he says, who will separate us from the love of Christ. Now, Paul isn't saying that there aren't things that won't make us feel separated. But I don't know how to process this passage without considering the first century Christians. Following Christ back then was very dangerous, very difficult, and still can be for many around the world. The crucifixion wasn't that long ago. And many Christians, just for following Christ, were beaten, were jailed, were separated from their families. And I can't think of anyone who would better understand that than the Apostle Paul, from two angles. First of all, because he was the fury against the church. He was the one that would look for Christians and get lists of Christians so that he could find them and he could separate and he could put them in jail, have them beaten and or even stoned. And Paul was such, because he felt like this was a work of God that he was doing, he did it well. And then the other angle is because Paul suffered himself for following Christ. Once he became a Christian, he was very bold for Christ, and he preached everywhere. And I'm going to read a passage for you out of 2 Corinthians that is a list of the kinds of suffering that he experienced for following Christ. And he's not saying this to boast on himself. He's saying this to give credibility because there was a lot of false teachers saying other things, and he wanted them to listen to what he was preaching about Christ Jesus because he was loyal and he was dedicated and he paid a price for it. He says here, in far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. I have been on the frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers amongst false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold 
and exposure. Wow. And I hear that, and as a modern-day first-world Christian, I have no idea. But he has experienced that for Christ. It would have been so easy. You know, how's it going, Paul? What you, how things been going for you? How's ministry going? It's been so easy for him to say, I don't think it really pays for me to follow Christ. Or maybe to say, I, I don't know that he's with me. This isn't going very well. He goes on. And he visits the reality of suffering in verse 35. So he says these questions, yes, these questions, will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? These kind of things come to all on some level, but some deal with famine and nakedness. Nakedness there he refers to as being destitute, being unprotected and vulnerable. And many have gone through that. Sometimes... I feel as I listen to things that people go through, I feel like circumstances can take on a personality. It's like they have an agenda to just crush and put weight on us and make us feel like we're away from the love of God. He goes on to summarize in the next passage there, really quoting Psalm 44 and verse 22. He goes on to say, As it is written, for your sake, for your sake, God, we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. That word considered grabbed me. That means for you to come to that place, if you're a persecutor, if you, for you to come to that place means you had to consider that the ones you were persecuting did not have value, that you could put them to death or mistreat them. And it also, in that consideration, would have to be that you would feel virtuous that you did. Basically what happened in the Nazi party. Justified, considered, these people can die. So he brings that up. And the question is, will any of these experiences separate us? And the answer is no. But I know that life's trials can make us feel that way. I know from some believers that are very, very solid... And they know that love, God loves them. But sometimes they experience such pain, fear, and sadness that they will say, I know God loves me, but I, I just can't process this. I just don't understand. How could he love me? And they struggle. And I've learned that this is why God has called us as Christians to comfort one another in the ways that we've been comforted. Take your trials, take your struggle, and go connect to someone else. Because in a way, what you're doing for them experientially is to make them not feel that separation. God told us to do that. But he also tells us to remind. Look at the next passage, verse 37. And Paul reminds that but in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Historically, Christianity should have ended. And it's almost like Paul is being prophetic here. How, how could he know how he would do 
when it was his time. Not if it was his time, but when it was his time to die. How did he know how he would respond when he felt the sword upon his neck? For he was beheaded. And Paul in the early church, there is no way that the gospel they were preaching was a health and wealth gospel. And Jesus never preached any of that. The church, hearing his words, clung to these thoughts and to Christ's example and to Paul's example, and they came to a place that they recognized it was worth dying for God. It was worth losing their life over this. Christians were basically coming to the place where they're saying, we won't separate from the love of God. And many of them sang songs while the torches were lit, while they were beaten, while they were jailed. They were connected and clinging to something greater than that. And that went on for centuries, separated from their families. I don't know that any generation of Christians experienced separation like that one. But they were clinging maybe to the the grip of their love for God was based on their love for the one who forgave them. It wasn't based on, I love God because he does blessings for me or he's made me comfortable. I think it was a spiritual grip that we love him because he first loved us. And how he first loved us was by forgiving us of our sins. And that's the highest way for us to feel and to know that we are loved. Paul was convinced of this. And from other writings, we learn this about Paul Not in the way that he died or when that came about, but it was how he was going through his Christian walk. Paul was the one that says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He's the one who said that I can can be content in all things, no matter what. If If I become rich, I can handle all those things. If I become poor, I can handle all those things. I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. He's the one who says, I'm hard-pressed from directions, having a desire to be with Christ, which is far better, but recognize it was more needful for him to be here. Paul did life, no matter what was coming, with a love because he understood how God loved him because of the way that he forgave him. And then he ends with this incredible list in verse 38 and 39. It's like this one more punch. It's this emotionally charged, all-encompassing list. He says there, For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. I don't know how anyone could have ever read that. Or preach that in a calm way. This is like a halftime speech. This is Paul saying that there is no other thing, nothing in this world. There is not anything with death or anything that life could throw us. He's saying there's nothing in any other world, no angels, principalities, or any darkness. There's nothing in any time frame, my past, my present, or what yet is to happen. He goes on to say there's nothing with power, and they would know that because they dealt with Caesar, and they all thought Caesar was God. That's who he said he was, and Caesar was going around and damning them. They, he, they had to hear this message that nothing with power 
power could separate them from the love of God. Nothing in the world above, nothing in the world below. And he does this big sweeping final statement. Nothing ever created can separate us from the love of God. He has given reasons from God's heart and God's mind. He has shared with us his own experiences that nothing shall separate us from the love of God. Amen? Nothing. So how do we process that? How does being secure in my salvation play out in my life? Well, first of all, there's a lot of things. I'm just going to list a few. First of all, I can rest in a salvation that will take me home to be with God. And if that doesn't seem important to us, or we don't think a lot about that because of our health, when you lose your health, or when someone tells you you only have so much time, all of a sudden, that really matters. But we can rest in a salvation and let that bring us less daily, daily anxiety. Because we're not dangling over hell, we're dancing with grace. And so we can wake up each day with gratefulness in our hearts, not with fear. We can forgive ourselves better and quicker because we're going to give that to God, and God is for me. And the second reason is that we can be victorious. Look in verse 37. He used this phrase, overwhelmingly conquer, which comes from a Greek word, hupernikeo. And that broken down means hyper which is, means beyond, and Nike, which means victory, victorious. So beyond victorious. And that's where Nike got his name from the Greek goddess Nike, who was winged. And that's where the swoosh comes from. The swoosh represents motion and speed. And Paul uses this word because the Greeks, this would make a lot of sense to them. And what he's saying here is that he's convinced that a believer cannot just defeat any of the enemies, anything on that list that would make us feel separated from God, but we can subjugate it. We can make those things our slaves. So Paul is saying this. Don't just look at it as being safe and being comfortable. Look at it that we can be victorious, that we don't have to be defeated and then, therefore, put up a fight. Put up a fight with Scripture when doubt comes and fear and guilt and temptation. And use God's Word. Use this passage to help you stay connected. And that's some of the special information that God wants those that He has called to know about His love. So, who, you can help me answer this, who shall separate us from the love of God? No one. Who? No one. Can I hear you again? Who? No one. And that's why Romans 8 is so special and so, so meaningful to us and so needed. Would you bow for prayer, please? Tim is going to come and he's going to sing a love song for us. If you're an unbeliever here, maybe that you've not come to a place, but you're here, there may be some curiosity or you've been invited. Because I've basically been speaking to those 
who have that relationship with God through Christ. And that doesn't make any of us any better. But if you're here today and you're curious about understanding and embracing and having that relationship with God, you are invited to Christ. He loves everyone, no matter what. No matter what you've been through, no matter what you're struggling with, He loves you and He invites you. And He won't force you, but He invites you to know His Son. And so today I want to encourage you, invite you to trust Christ as your Savior. If you want to know more of what's involved in that, how can you do that? Maybe even if you're in a hurry, you just want some literature, you can go to the back room there to my left, room one, and a pa there'll be pastors there that can talk with you today. And may this be something as such a great passage can, can encourage you, believer. Maybe this can encourage you to trust him, to sense his commitment to you. May it help us all to live more victorious. Let's pray together. Father, you're so good. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the things, Lord, that you have told us that we, we wouldn't know otherwise, God, because it doesn't make sense that you would love us knowing everything about us. So I'm so glad, God, for the gospel, and I'm glad for passages like this that can help us know the way that you love us. And I pray this in Jesus' name.